It's good to be here. Um, it's been a real pleasure to be able to listen and hear the other guys uh, the last couple of weeks getting to go through Titus and Omer in a little way, nervously waiting for my turn uh, here tonight, but I'm really glad that we can be here and that um, I'm here to help you go through what I've seen, uh, that Jesus, what God has shown me from this passage. So I'd really like to share that with you here tonight. So uh, before we start, let's uh, pray again and ask the Lord to take what we are about to hear. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight. We thank you for your letter of Titus, uh, and that was an encouragement uh, to the people back then and is still applicable uh, to us now uh, that, as we read it. We pray that you would be with us here tonight, that uh, you would be guiding my words as I bring this message, and uh, for all of us, for uh, you would be working in our hearts and our ears, that would be listening and understanding what you would have us um, take away from this. In your name, amen. Well, uh, if you had to describe Australians, the people of Australia, to someone who had never met one, how would you do it? Imagine you are a tour guide for a group of tourists who had never heard anything about Australia before, but for some reason had decided you still wanted to visit. How would you describe the people there? Well, probably once you had finished warning them about all the dangerous uh, animals, the heat, the weather, and everything else, you'd probably use words like, well, they're a playful bunch, they love a laugh, and are pretty all right once you get to, once you get to know them. Or if you're feeling in a less charitable mood, maybe you'd use words like, well, they can't take anything seriously, they're always poking fun at others and don't know when to stop, and they really dislike authority and being told what to do, and sometimes you just can't understand a word that they are saying. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard worse things, and uh, you can probably think of other ones, uh, but let's leave it there. It's interesting, don't you think, what people can be known for, sometimes for things that are true about them, and sometimes for just how others perceive them. Well, when it came to public perception, the people of Crete had it really bad. Crete was known as the, in the Greek and Roman worlds as the island of liars. A Greek insult was to call, to call someone a liar was to call them kretismos, which literally means behaving like a Cretan. Now, we can think that maybe that was just a bad reputation or bias against them. But from all sources, this descriptor was well-earned and even embraced. The ancient historian Polybus wrote that, quote, It is almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Cicero, a Roman senator and philosopher, put it this way. Uh, moral principles are so divergent to the Cretans that they consider highway robbery honorable. How could this reputation have come about? Well, I'm sure there are a number of factors that we can't fully know the extent of, 
But we do know that what we do know is that the people of the island of Crete heavily worshipped the Greek god Zeus, whom they they believed originally was a man from Crete who became a god. They, the Cretans exonerated Zeus. They looked up to him. They, particularly his cunningness, seductiveness, and ability to get whatever he wanted by any means necessary. Think about that. Their role model that they wanted to be like more than anyone else in the world was uh, known for being sneaky, for sleeping with anyone who had the misfortune of catching his eye, and for being able to bend the wills of others to always come out on top. The Cretans did also worship other gods from the Greek pantheon and would have had influence from the Romans, but nothing came close to their admiration for Zeus and the heights that they believed a Cretan could aspire to. So learning from this, we see why the deviousness and getting your own way were pretty much the defining characteristics of the Cretans that they were known for in the ancient world and very much virtues that they lived by. They had consciously taken on the traits of the thing that they worshipped, and they couldn't see a problem with it. To the mind of the Cretan culture, how they were living was the best way to live and the best way to be happy. You can imagine, then, the troubles that the new Christians of the island of Crete were facing, having grown up in a culture whose worship had been like this for as long as they could remember, and they reveled in it. They loved behaving like this and thought it was the best way to be. The new believers in Crete were finding it incredibly difficult to understand that as Christians, they were now supposed to not be only putting aside their old gods and ways of worship, but also changing how they were living and what role models they were aspiring to be. They struggled to separate between the traits and the virtues that they knew of their old gods and what they had learned of their Savior, Jesus, through the gospel Paul had brought them when he first arrived. How, as part of accepting Jesus as Lord, they were now called by their Savior to live in a way that he had instructed and demonstrated. As a result, the Cretans were living now in some sort of confusing combination and mess of their old ways and the new. Now, doesn't this sound somewhat familiar to us? We too, as Christians, 2,000 years on, can, cl- can also fall into a mess of holding on to the traits and beliefs of our culture, even as we claim we are saved by Christ. It is all too common for us to celebrate and glorify Christ for saving us and acknowledging his rule in our lives while still hanging on to the virtues and behaviors from our old selves. If we have not given serious, intentional, internal thought about how we are to live and how we are to be different under Christ, from an outside perspective, we might not be looking that much different from the rest of our culture and our neighbors. Think about what that means. What what would that mean for our witness? If we are to claim that we are changed and renewed into a new person, made alive and free from the burden of our sin because of Christ saving us, but we look and behave pretty much the same as the people around us, then how could that possibly help our message? Or convince others that there is anything to what we are saying? What does, what does that say about the conviction of our beliefs? Let's keep these questions in mind as we read the rest of what Paul's instructions are to these struggling Christians and see what he has to say. 
So, as I said before, the Cretan Christians were new believers who are behaving in their old ways that they learned from their previous worship. Now, Paul has recognized this, and this is why in his letter to Titus, he has made it clear that the core values of the true God as seen through Jesus are so much different than that of their previous Greek ones. In chapter 1, verse 2, he begins the letter by saying that he is a servant of God who has promised eternal life and who does not lie. Contrast that to what we just were saying about the defining trait of Zeus and subsequently the Cretans, what they were known for, being a liar. Paul wants to be clear that the new life of the Cretan Christians is to be radically different from that of their previous selves. And he does so by first reminding them that of what God claims about himself, that he is truthful to his very core, and deceit is not in him. So now, as we finally look into start looking at chapter 2, Paul begins to lay out to Titus what these new lives are supposed to look like. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Paul bases his instructions for a new life on the sound doctrine coming from Christ and what Christ demonstrated of God's character. The phrase that Paul uses, sound doctrine, could also be used to express healthy teaching, meaning that which is good for life. These traits of self-control, faith, love, and endurance wouldn't have been alien to the Cretans. They were still people, after all, not monsters. But it could be appropriate to say that they would definitely have been odd or surprising to them to hear someone say that a life built on these traits is to be praised and seen as a goal for people to personally strive towards. It's almost a complete reversal of their value systems. Rather than striking back at those who wrong you or dealing underhandedly to get ahead as what they would expect, Paul is promoting temperance, which is another word for restraint, and self-control. Instead of their normal culture of a man demanding respect for their prowess, and if challenged, getting it through violence, Titus is instructed to tell the Cretans to focus their efforts on showing the soundness of their lives through their faith, their love, and their endurance. As we continue reading this chapter, we notice that Paul divides up these instructions and with them paints a picture of what he sees of the ideal Cretan household centered around Jesus. He directs each of them, each member of the household, to be living lives for the glory of God and the good of each other. In verse 2 and continuing to verse 3, we read that he directs the older men and women to be temperate, self-controlled, and setting an example in how they live. They are to take their jobs seriously as role models for the younger generation and encourage them to live differently from their culture. Let's read again from verse uh, 2 into 3. Teaching the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slandered or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. 
Once the older members of the household churches are taking their jobs of living Christ's way seriously and are changing how they approach things, they can then be examples to the younger men and women of what to strive for. To both the younger women and the men, Paul has more instructions to pass on that are to be delivered both by Titus himself and through the example of the older Christians. Let's read from verse 4. They then that being the older women, can urge the younger women to love their children, uh, husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Then into verse 6 to 8. Similarly, encourage the younger men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Paul calls for the young men and women to be serious in their behavior. They are to stop putting off marriage and partying around and sleeping, with, uh, sleeping about as what was a fashionable trend at their time and instead to be looking to be sound, reliable partners to each other seeking to build and prosper as a family together. The young men are particularly to have integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech, all traits that they would normally be thinking are counter to their culture, counter to the deviousness and underhanded actions that they would have been thinking are needed to get ahead in their culture. They are instead to become healthy, productive citizens, contributing towards the good of their homes and their neighbors around them in the towns where they lived. Paul also has words to speak to the slaves, the indentured servants or workers that you would at that time commonly find in the Grecian and Roman households. Slaves in the early church communities started by Paul would have been seen and treated as equals in free men and women inside the communities thanks to the true understanding of the equalizing power of the gospel. However, Paul is warning them not to use this newfound freedom to rebel against their masters. Let's read from verse 9. Teach uh, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be trusted, fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Paul says, uh, so this, Paul says this, so that the Christian slaves and their unique position of being free in Christ, but subject to human masters, would not talk back or disobey their masters, and thus be labeled as troublesome and unworthy, uh, untrustworthy slaves, and even potentially linked to slave rebellions that were not uncommon around that time. In their position that they were in, where a slave would commonly do whatever they could just to get back in some way at their masters for unfair treatment, and then the masters retaliating back uh, with even being even more harsh and unfair to force compliance, the slaves have an opportunity to show the redemptive work of the gospel that gives them hope and meaning beyond their social status here on earth. It was a definitely a hard task, but it had the potential to be the greatest witness of all the Christians on Crete 
of the redemptive work and internal change and hope that comes from accepting Christ as Savior. A hope that is not founded on the material possessions, honor, or power in this life, but knowing right standing with their Creator while here on earth and looking onwards towards the promise of eternal life promised to them by the one who claimed them and does not lie. So in summary, Paul has given what he envisions of what the new Cretan household is supposed to look like. One that is centered around, not around self-gain and pleasure, but instead centered around Christ. I think it's safe to assume that Paul isn't just delivering his lifestyle instructions here like this because he is thought of it in this order or something like that. But instead, Paul is doing this on purpose. Paul has a specific vision of the life that he foresees for the young churches of Crete, and it is a complete one. He wishes for them to be changed both individually and together as a household. He desires for them a complete life revision changing from their previously self-gained, focused lifestyles to a grace-centered one. Each family member is called to overturn their previous selves and center their lives on Christ. If you recall APC's first sermon of the year that we were blessed to hear a few weeks ago to have Ben deliver to us, you might remember that he exhorted us to place God not just as a high priority in our lives and thus competing for the space with everything else we have going on, but rather to pull it all out and place God as the very center of our lives. Just as God was set as the center of the tabernacle, this temple, and ultimately the whole nation of Israel. Paul is envisioning the same thing for the Cretan Christians. He wishes for them, not just for the addition of God to their Cretan lives, but rather a complete revision and recentering of their everything so that they can be God-centered Cretans. One second. Ah, okay. Now, when Paul wrote those instructions to Titus and to the Cretan Christians, he didn't just give them rules to follow for the benefit of their spiritual growth and interpersonal relations and leave it at that. No, Paul wrote these of another purpose of why they are to be looking at themselves and changing to live according to the example of Christ. And that reason was the advancement of the gospel in the world around them. After each of the instructions to the house members, Paul says why they should be doing these things. In verse 5, he finishes it with, So no one will malign the word of God meaning that the gospel could not be wrongfully criticized because of their actions. In verse 8, So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And finally, verse 10, So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Paul believes that the gospel doesn't need to hide away. It is able to defend itself in the public square of the world. And the way that it is able to do it is both through the trustworthy and sound presentation of the gospel through evangelism that we see Paul carrying out in the books of Acts and other le- in his other letters, but also through the demonstration of the redemptive qualities of the good news as seen in the changed lives of the believers. 
The Cretan Christians, in their confused state of mixing old and new traits, had been providing a poor witness to their neighbors and bringing shame to the gospel by failing to act how they should be. Their neighbors had been given plenty of ammo to criticize and badmouth these new converts because they were hardly living any different from their old ways and were failing to live out the different values that they were preaching. Paul is correcting them here and instructing Titus in no uncertain measures to bring these teachings to them so that they might realize their mistakes, repent, and start living in a way that demonstrates the gospel in every aspect of their lives. Paul foresees the great witness that the Cretans can have in their old culture surrounding them and urges them to live anew so that they can demonstrate the good and hope-filled lives that accepting Christ can bring. Now, when we think of ourselves here, we can see that Paul's words are not just relevant to the Cretans and their day, but have application of how we should look at ourselves and our lives in 2022. Paul has given strong advice on how to live, advice that he would have us live not according to our culture or the best way that we can find to accumulate wealth, prestige, or a best way to indulge in luxury and pleasures for ourselves. Instead, Paul has this word, live reliably with the soundness in your words and your deeds so that your family will be blessed and for the sake of the presentation of the gospel that has saved you. Paul wants for the Christians of Crete, who are situated among some of the most ardent followers of Zeus, to stand out in their lives by combating deviousness with reliability, underhandedness with soundness in love and faith, capriciousness and sexual hedonism with self-control and family devotion. Paul wants for the Cretan Christians to stand out from their culture, to live based on God's grace, to live lives that are self-controlled, reliable, and loving. Doing this will present the gospel of Christ as attractive in their culture. And Paul's words are now relevant to us today. We can look at the letter of Titus and see the call to examine our own lives and live differently to the world around us. This difference along with the gospel fearlessly and faithfully preached, is the shining light of the church in each and every place that it finds itself. The gospel of God is trodden upon when Christians cannot break from their culture and turn away from sin. Think about it. Isn't it shameful when you hear of Christians living and treating others no different than the world around them? When Christians are selfish, money-hungry, devious, or unreliable. When Christians are poor citizens of this world, we give ammo to our critics and dirty the shining message of God's amazing grace to a broken, sinful humanity through the sacrifice of His Son so that we could reestablish our relationship with our Creator. Paul is not asking the Cretans to upheave their culture, to go to war, demand social change from their neighbors. Instead, he is instructing them to change themselves. He is urging them to stop emulating their culture, their old gods, and their role models, and instead to be deliberate in their new faith and to strive to be like Jesus Christ. 
Now, as we reach the end of the chapter, Paul finishes this section of instructions by underlining what the difference is between the current reality of the Cretan way of life and the new one under Jesus Christ, and how a change from one to the other is possible. He summarizes it in verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. How great is that passage? I think this is one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. It just amazingly sums up the grace and um, love of God. All these changes and instructions that Paul has been giving to the Christians in this letter, he believes are possible through the grace of God. Notice that in verse 11, Paul starts this with, for the grace of God, meaning that everything he has instructed Titus previously in this chapter is possible because of God's grace, his kindness to us when we did not deserve it. It is God's grace that has allowed us to say no to our old selves, to our ungodliness, and instead live self-controlled, upright, godly lives where we are. It is not lives that strive to be on the best, to be on top, the richest, or the most powerful and famous, but rather lives that are aware of the reality of this world, of its fleetingness, of its joys and of its pains, and to have the hope for a future beyond it. The blessed hope of the appearance of our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ, who didn't come in power and authority to judge us as we deserved, but rather in humbleness and sacrifice to save us from the just reward for our sins. The evil that we have done in our broken state. God has promised us that if we repent and follow Jesus, that he will redeem us from wickedness, strike it out from our tab as paid for in full and claim us as his own, a people for whom he is not just a creator, but a just Lord and a loving father. That we would be then a people who are eager to do good, not just for our own benefit or for some supernatural scoreboard, but because it is in our nature as followers of Christ, our new nature to do good as he has done. And all of this is the promise from the God who does not lie. How great is that? So as we finish, I ask you to think how, of how would people know you? How would they see you and APC in the public square of our culture? Are we living as we are instructed to by our Lord, both by Paul and by the example of Jesus that we see on every page of the New Testament? How is our witness to our neighbors in how we act? Ask ourselves, is it the same as everyone else or centered around a different source? Are we holding on to the things from our culture that we are happy with and can't or won't see that they are counteractive to the new 
grace-centered, gospel-based lives that we are called to by our Lord Jesus? Are we doing what we must to change our old, from our old ways to living a life that presents the attractiveness of the gospel, of the change of heart, mind, and soul towards the hope and peace that God has promised to those who believe and repent? Do people look at us and knowing the soundness of our character from our interactions with them, do they wish to know what makes us different? Let us make good of our faith with our deeds and strive to be changed in how we are both outside and in that our public and private lives that we would be striving to live towards how Jesus showed that we may shine a clear light of how the gospel has changed us and of the God that has given us hope. Let's take this challenge to heart now and think about the lives that God has called us to. Talk with each other after the sermon and during the meal later and think about how we are to be different or similar or how we are different or similar to the Cretans that Paul wrote this letter to 2,000 years ago. And how are we going to respond to the message that Paul had for Titus and for us? Let's close with prayer. Lord, thank you for your saving grace. That, you, that we can be saved because you first loved us before we knew or acknowledged you. Thank you that you have given us hope to a fallen humanity of reconnection. Hope of reconnection to their creator and a fresh start making us anew. God, I pray that this sermon has been heard and taken to heart, that you would be working in both myself and in others to help them all, help us all recognize our failings and put off our old selves and virtues, and that through your power and grace, we would strive to be like Christ in our lives and our deeds. From the bottom, bottom of our hearts, Lord, souls and minds, Renew us continually. In your name, amen.